Well, thank you so much, choir, for that rousing piece. We're turning to the Bible this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 1. And you'll, we're making progress uh, every day. <coughs> Although we're stuck in verse 3 this morning. I want to read this whole section again, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through, the, through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you can't read these opening verses of Ephesians and miss the element of worship that is found there. In fact, there are many who perceive in the material that we've just read something of the shape of the church's liturgy going forward. There's obviously the call to worship, as we saw based on the synagogue usage of the word blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, is that Hebrew uh, blessedness uh, with a Christian twist, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is place for the forgiveness of sins, therefore the confession of sin, right there in the middle where we, we are pointed to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, and therefore, flowing from that, the forgiveness of sins that are ours. There's a consciousness of the heavenly component. These blessings that we receive from God, we receive from God in the heavenly places, in the heavenly places. There is uh, a sense of our, our confession of the triune God. Because if, if this piece of Paul, which is one sentence, has any form or shape to it at all, then when you read it over, there is only one shape that has, and that's the mention of the threefold members of the Trinity, the Father 
and the Son when it comes to redemption and the Holy Spirit when it comes to our inheritance. So we confess the triune God. And then there's the exposition of the gospel mysteries. All the major elements of the gospel are found in compact form in this great introductory piece. Everything that's expounded from the pulpit, everything we need for our our spiritual instruction, formation, growth in grace, all there in a nutshell in that opening piece. And the repetition, the repetition of this phrase to be in Christ, to be in the beloved, in him, in him, in him, repeatedly, underlining that union and communion that we have with Christ, with the real Christ, which finds itself replicated, especially when we're at the Lord's table and partaking of communion together. It's a reminder of our union and communion with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And one other thing is that this piece gives us, its whole section, an outline of salvation history from its origins before the creation of the world in the mind and will of God to its culmination when we receive possession of the inheritance that God has prepared for those who love him. That's the whole outline of the the Christian doctrine of salvation. That would be a good place to stop, wouldn't it? Because it's kind of comprehended everything in our liturgy up to this point, and it's comprehended elements of the gospel itself. But before we do that, uh, before we explore the wonders of these verses, which we shall do in time, I want you to observe on the surface this repetition of the words, in Christ, in the beloved, in him. That repetition puts Jesus Christ at the center of everything here in our text. Our understanding of and our confidence in the salvation that God gives us in all of its length and breadth and height and depth in these verses that follow is absolutely connected, eternally connected to Jesus Christ our Lord. So, my question, what do you think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? In the late 19th century, there was, as a result of German higher criticism, what they called the search for the historical Jesus. That search uh, emanated from a, a re-reading of the Gospels, and a a desire to distinguish between what they called the Christ of faith, that is the Christ that we believe in, that we've been singing about, that we've been praying to, and that we've been confessing in our creed. That's the Christ of faith. And the Jesus of history, that is the man Jesus. And what they were doing was they were distinguishing between those two, but not only distinguishing, causing a separation between those two figures. Then in the 20th century, when I first went to seminary, we were still dealing with the kenotic Christ, based on the word kenosis, which has sometimes translated to empty oneself, 
You find it used in Philippians chapter 2. And the question is, what did Jesus empty himself of? Well, the canonic scholars would say that he gave up, he emptied himself of his divinity, took away all of his divinity. He left it behind him and he became absolutely and only a man. Or if he retained any of his divinity, he refused to use his attributes of divinity. That was a kind of modified form of canonic theory. Then in the mid-century, I'm talking as if I know the 20th century really well. Of course, I I don't really. But mid-century, there we have Jesus the Liberator. I think that was still around a little bit when when I, when I was a young man, there was uh, Che Guevara, the, the Marxist revolutionary uh, folks in Central America. And uh, it was actually there that this whole idea of Jesus the Liberator was, was emerged, was birthed. And then in the late, latter part of the 20th century, we have evangelicals moving away from Catholic, that is, creedal orthodoxy and reformed confessional orthodoxy. There was a rejection of the idea that is fundamental in historical Christian understanding of God that the Son of God is eternally, eternally generated or eternally birthed without a beginning. He doesn't, there's not a day when he's born but eternally being brought to life, birthed by the Father, without a beginning and without an end. That was uh, captured in a word that was formerly in our Bibles and isn't in our Bibles anymore. Somebody wrote a PhD thesis, somebody in Texas, there to blame, uh, wrote this thesis in which he challenged the translation that we used to have in our Bibles of the only begotten Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, that is his only generated, only birthed Son. And so that was extracted from our Bibles and still is. The word behind it is the word monogenes in Greek. In 2016 at the Evangelical Theological Society's meeting, I think in Chicago that year, Professor Lee Irons produced the classic study of the usage of that word monogenes, which in our Bibles now is just the only son, the only son. And he demonstrated by using computer uh, work that we're able to do nowadays, uh, doing a word search, both inside and outside biblical usage, classical uh, Greek Usage, he demonstrated without, without anybody to, to contradict it, that the word monogenes always means the only born son, the only begotten son, the only offspring of. So the Bible translators better get back on the game here and change the modification they put in, and replace the modification for this one, this this, uh, original meaning of the word. Now, I don't want to get into the technical stuff this morning. I want you to know there's a thing called eternal generation of the Son, eternal begetting of the Son, 
The Son is born eternally. That is, that He has no beginning and no end. Well, with that in the background, I want you to notice that the Christian God who is commended in the synagogue, that language is used both of God the Father and God the Son. Now you say, you use, you've used some really confusing stuff here. You talked about eternal generation and eternal birth. What does that mean? Well, without using that language, let me show you from the passage what we mean. It matters that God is named Father. It matters that God is named Father. In the opening credits of this book, we heard Paul's claim to be an apostle by the will of God. He describes Christian people as those who have been set apart. They're saints. They're set apart for God, by God. And they demonstrate who they are by being faithful to God, that is, believing, being a believer throughout their lives. And we're told that all of that takes place in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That expression, in a variety of forms, is going to come up again at least 11 times. What God is doing in us and with us is intrinsically bound up with who Jesus is. So in verse 2, the stupendously free grace of God. That is God's gift of salvation to us. No strings attached. And our, holy, uh, our holistic flourishing as people, shalom or peace, comes from God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no the Lord Jesus Christ, or, but the impl- impression given is that it's our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can add that in. This puts, by the way, weight on the term Lord. God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's using here the word kurios in the Greek, Lord, which comes from his favorite translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation, and it translates Yahweh, which is the unpronounceable personal name of God himself. It reminds us of the language of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In the greeting, we found the Father and the Son, the Father and the Lord, that is, brought together in intimate union and communion with one another. The communion between the Father and those, as well as those who believe in Jesus. Union and communion between the Father and the Son and between the Father and you who believe in Jesus. So when we come to verse 3 then, we, we learn that all the blessings that God has to give you and me are given to us in Christ. This draws our attention towards God, the one from whom grace and peace come. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. This leads us to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw 
in our last sermon that uh, blessed be God is the fountain from which every blessing God has for us comes. And if you read verses 2 and 3 carefully, you'll notice a subtle shift of emphasis. In verse 2, it is the Father and us. Look at the words, our Father. In verse 3, it is the Father and the Son that are in view, the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus is immediately being identified with God as our Lord. This brings before us, as Daniel Trier of Wheaton College puts it, a filial relationship, a son relationship that entails both personal distinction, you can say this is the son, but also divine identity. The son, because he is from God and God is God, is also God. So in the second half of the verse, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All the blessings that are destined for us flow out of the Father and the Son communion in the Holy Spirit in heaven. Everything that's coming to us as believers comes from God in Christ by the Spirit. And from this statement comes all the subordinate clauses and statements of this piece of writing all depend on God and Christ, come from God in Christ. Whether you're thinking of predestination, holiness, adoption, redemption, and our final inheritance, it all comes flooding out from God. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to cover this in small detail, go over to some details later on, but let me say this. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit same, share the same divine name. In nomine Patri et Filii Spiritus Sanctu. In the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, elsewhere we're told that the Father is one Lord God, Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. That the Son is one Lord God, John 20, verse 28. And that the Spirit is one Lord God, in Acts 5, 3, 4, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And God will, uh, Paul rather, will later say, there is one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of us all. So all this naming makes it very clear to us that the names signify the relations. That's obvious. If one of my sons is here visiting and I introduce him to you and I say, this is my son, well, by calling him my son, I'm indicating to you the relationship between us. We have a natural relationship between us. I'm his dad. He's my son. And so these words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indicate the relation between them. You have the Father, who's characterized by paternity, the Son by filiation, and the Holy Spirit, spiration. 
Now, there's a, a nice little book by Michael Reeves on the Trinity that I advise you to get if you want a simple introduction to it. And in that book, he, he asks us to imagine, imagine a single personed God, a singular God. Well, we don't have to imagine it because we know of one. The Quran distinguishes Allah from the God described in our text. Let me quote from Surah 112. Say not, Trinity, desist. It will be better for you. Failed threat there. For God is one God. Glory to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. Say this. He, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten. There is none like him. In other words, Allah has no son. Allah has, is a singular, singular God. And uh, I, I suppose he makes the universe at some stage in order that he might have creatures to rule and to whom they will be submitted. Now, one of the things that the Apostle Paul makes clear to the philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17 is this, that the Christian God does not need creation. There is no lack in God that's met by creatures like you and me in order for him to be who he is. In other words, he does not need us. Let's, let's hear what Paul actually says to them. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and everything. That's what the Father is. The Father is an ocean of vitality, is the, the source from which everything comes that exists. Contrast the way of Allah with the way Jesus talks of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As a little boy of the age of 12, Jesus knew God to be his Father. I must be about my Father's business, or perhaps a better translation, my Father's house. Now, if God is Father... And that's what Jesus reveals. It tells us something about God, that God is first of all a life-giving, relational, and loving being. Like, take all of us and all of the universe out of the picture. What are you left with? Well, you're left with God, who is a life-giving, relational, loving being. There's the Father, and there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. That kind of God is different from the kind of God who's just on his own and who's looking for obedient servants. 
That kind of God, a God who's relational, a God who is self-giving, life-giving, and loving, is a God that you could love back. Don't you think? A God that you could love back. Now, what we're told about God consistently is that he's eternal and that he's self-sufficient and that he does not have a beginning and that he made everything that now exists. When we think of this birth of Jesus, we're not thinking of his birth from Mary. When he was born, when he was conceived in Mary's womb, His human nature did not exist at all. It came into existence by a supernatural miracle of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. And after that miraculous conception, it was born born naturally. Hers was a supernatural conception, but a natural birth. And born into the world in that way. And yet, his birth of the Father partakes of the Father's eternity and the Father's self-sufficiency. Everything the Father has, the Son has because he comes from the Father. Now, a cheeky student, and I used to work a lot with students, uh, and several of them were cheeky, uh, once came up with a gotcha line for, for somebody who was speaking to a student group. It's now been picked up, and you can even see it in Michael Reeves' book. He's obviously had the same old story. But he came up with what he thought was a gotcha question. Speaking to this Christian uh, speaker at this university Christian group, he asked the question. Here's the question. What was God doing before creation? What did God do before there was anything? What was he doing? What was Allah doing before there was anything? Well, nothing, apparently. He hadn't made anything, so there was nothing to interact with. Allah was on his own. You may want to feel sorry for being all alone, eternally. What was God doing before creation? Well, the reply that the speaker gave to this young man was, making hell for people like you who ask that kind of question. (laughs) But that wasn't, of course, the right answer. Jesus gives us the right answer. John 17, verse 24, listen to Jesus. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. What was God doing before creation? Loving his son. And the son was loving his father. Far from God being lonely in eternity, God enjoyed and has enjoyed from all eternity a fruitful, loving, joyful life in himself in the happy place of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, beloved, I cannot talk about fathers from the pulpit and ignore the fact that you may be here in this room today And the word father conjures up ideas in your mind, a variety of memories and feelings that burn rather than bless. 
I want to acknowledge that some human fathers can be bullies, can be abusive, can be absent. Some human fathers can almost set out to diminish rather than enhance your life. This, by the way, comes up in Hallmark movies quite a lot. You find people who have they're launched in some career or other and it's because their father wanted them to do this that they're doing it. They're doing something different or else that they're doing what their father wanted them to do and now they've come to see it's not who they are and all of that. But the fun of the Hallmark movie is not the reality of some people's lives where all the time people have been told they're not good enough, they're not good enough, they're not good enough. So that people like me, fathers, can be guilty of that. But we must not confuse our experience with our human father, or mother for that matter, with the fatherhood of God. God our Father is life-giving, life-giving. Not only in the sense that he gives existence to every creature, that he gives daily life to you and me, uh, as well as to the other creatures that he's made, though it does refer to that, but he has eternally, without beginning, been pouring all of his life into his Son and directing all of his love towards his Son. In the passage, we have a word that captures this thought. In Christ, and then halfway through the passage, in the beloved, in the beloved. Who is the beloved? It's the beloved alluded to in Song of Solomon as he comes looking for his bride, the church. It's the word used at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son. It's a word used way back in the time of Abraham. When God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, your beloved. And even in those words of that call to Abraham to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice, horrific idea, horrific. But you can already hear in the voice of God that he knows At least he knows because he made Abraham and he made Isaac that what Abraham would feel about this boy who had waited for most of his life, his son, his only begotten son, Isaac, his beloved. It's always an echo of the God of heaven himself. Paul picks up that echo. In Romans chapter 8, when he says, He who did not spare his only son, he spared Isaac's, Abraham's son. He spared not his only son, but gave him up for us all. God the Father is life-giving. He gives life to his son as well as life to us. And God the Father is love-giving. First John chapter 4, we read these words. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If God were solitary like Allah, 
He would have no one to love until he made creatures. In Islam, God is merely a super authority figure. People submit to him. And I'm sure there are those in Islam who love him to the degree that he can be loved. But you can't say in Islam that God is love. For eternally, there was no one for God to love. But in the Bible, it says God is love because he eternally gave life and love to the Son in the Holy Spirit. There never was a time when the Son didn't exist. So there never was a time when there was no love in God. God is love. Just as the Son is the radiance of his Father's own being. And there never was a time in which God didn't lavish all that he has on the Son. Let's listen to Jesus' testimony in John 3. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Or in John chapter 5, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. The Father delights to give everything to the Son. And there never was a time in which the Son didn't love the Father back. The Father is the lover. The Son is the beloved. Now, Mike Reeves, that I mentioned earlier, calls our attention to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. This is what Paul writes there. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, the word head, head there in the best lexicons, you'll point you to this. It means the headwaters, place of prominence from which everything that, that is kind of flows out of there, like the headwaters of a mighty river. And that's the way it's being used here. The headwaters of a glorious cascade of love. As the father loves the son, as the husband loves the wife, as Christ loves the church. Christ is the lover of the church and the church is his beloved. We love him because he first loved us. Incidentally, there is a replication of this in marriage. The husband is to be the principal lover, the wife, the beloved. And he is to love his wife freely, unconditionally, and lavish upon her love, just as the father loves the son. Just as the son loves his church, so the husband should love his wife. That will cause her to love him back. That should cause the church to love Jesus back. Now, how does this work? How does this love of the Father for the Son work within the Trinity itself? Well, I say that you see a, a hint of this when you read about the baptism of Jesus. In Mark's account, Mark chapter 3, verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and a voice from heaven corresponding to the coming of the dove was heard saying, this is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. Well pleased. 
In other words, the Father makes known his love to his Son through the Spirit. And that's precisely how God makes his love known to his church. He gives us the Spirit. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 tells us the Holy Spirit is the love of God. God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. By giving his spirit to the Son, the Father shows his love to the Son. By giving the spirit to the believer, the Father shows his love to us, his adopted children. And this love lies behind the language of the benediction when we talk about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the communion we have with the Holy Spirit, which is communion with God. So here is a a way of understanding the Trinity. It's only one way of understanding it. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is love itself. Beautiful picture. The life of the triune God is a life of perfect love, perfect and inexhaustible, giving and receiving. And as believers, we are destined to see God. Faith, we live by faith here, will become sight. And when we see God, we will see love. Now, two things flow out of this. God is love. He isn't just loving. He is love itself. Secondly, God first loved us. He loved us before we were able to to love either him or anything else. It was loving us that lay behind us, him giving us existence. We read in 1 John chapter 4, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. He loved us when he made us. He loved you the way he made you. Yes, with all your quirks and, you know, your whatever habits. He loved you the way you are. He made you the way you are. He delights in you as you are. Never forget that. God loves me. God loves me. Why? Because the Bible tells us so. And he made you, not because it was something lacking in his perfection, which we could supply, but because he wished and willed to have other beings to share his life, his eternal life, and to enjoy his love. Somebody's put it like this. God created the world not to increase his own beatitude, nor to acquire a beatitude he did not have, but in order to manifest his perfection through the good things which by his free choice he bestows upon his creatures. Thomas Aquinas puts it like this, God seeks glory not for his sake, but for ours. Or Pierre Charles puts it, the glory of God does not consist in receiving from us something which will make him richer, It consists rather in him giving us the means 
of being no longer nothing. We were once nothing. And he gave us physical being. And he has given us the new birth. God's shown his love then in creation. He not only made things out of nothing, but he sustains everything. Every moment of our and and creation's existence. He's shown his love to us in redemption. Look at the centrality of redemption in this passage. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Every time we confess our sins as we come together for worship and lift up our heads to receive the proclamation of the word of pardon and absolution of our sins, it's a rehearsal of the gospel. Over and over and over again, we are, we are seeing the gospel proclaimed to us because we need the gospel. Every one of us needs the gospel. All of our lives long, we need the gospel. And he comes to cleanse us by his word and spirit. Listen to John's account. In this was made manifested the love of God towards us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us in creation and redemption and he showed his love to us in union, that is in union with Christ. By our union with Christ, we're caught up into the love wherewith the Father and the Son are united in the life of the Holy Trinity. John chapter 17. Jesus prayed it would be like this. That we would have the love wherewith you have loved me, this is Jesus talking to the Father, may be in them and I in them. Because of this union with Christ, we have God to indwelling us so that we're able to love God back through himself, that is through the Holy Spirit, even as the Father and the Son love one another in the Spirit. And from our baptism up until the beatific vision when we see the essence of God clearly, And faith gives way to sight. Throughout that whole period is a period of increasing union between your soul and God. That's really the purpose of worship. That we get to know God better. And that we get to know him in our very hearts and love him with all our hearts. What do you think of Christ? Somebody once wrote a hymn, I think it was Isaac Newton, or John Newton rather, not Isaac Newton. (laughs) That would have been a miracle. It goes like this, what think you of Christ is the test. To try both your state, that is where you are before God, and your scheme, that is your the way you think about things. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. How Jesus appears to your view. As he is beloved 
or not, so God is disposed towards you and mercy or wrath is your lot. This is a day for you to start thinking about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as Christians to do so. And in thinking of him, Lord, be able to think of the way in which you have loved us with an everlasting love and enfolded us in your heart. And that you are preparing, you are preparing a future for us that is inconceivable to us at the moment. Beyond all wonder, the exquisite joy of your immediate presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.